Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do. Leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785, or go to your homepage, which I'm sure is askbillnye.com, askbillnye.com. You can check me out on all the social media to find out about our upcoming guests. But right now, I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and seriously, everybody, dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Bill, it is great to be here. Now, Bill, you know that I'm a family man, right? Yes, you have two uh, lovely daughters. Yes, remarkable. Uh, two remarkable, lovely daughters. They're lovely. They do ask me for things a lot. You know, daddy, daddy, give me food, clean my room, check out this TikTok dance. And every once in a while, I'm not saying this happens often, but every once in a while, I'm a little stressed out. I'm a little tired and feeling overwhelmed. And I'll say, ah! Give me a break, you you parasites. But you know, parasites are creatures too. All creatures great and small deserve our love. Don't parasites deserve our love as well? Today, to find out, we have an actual parasite lover on this show. Yes, my friends, a parasite lover. Our guest today is Dr. Chelsea Wood. She's an ecology professor at the University of Washington, where she studies parasites in both marine and freshwater ecosystems. Dr. Chelsea Wood, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Chelsea? Absolutely. May I call you Bill? Please. What is a parasite in your scientific professional view? Parasites are creepy crawlies that live in intimate and durable relationships with their hosts. Um, intimate and durable. That's right. So, um, Corey, your your daughters might qualify, although we usually classify uh, organisms of the same species as not parasites on one another. Your daughters actually increase mm. your fitness. They're they're also not creepy crawly. That may just be <laughs> it, it may just be you know the, like the proud father talking here. That's what she thinks of those boys in her class. <laughs> um, no, but but seriously, you know everything feeds on something else. What, what's the difference between something that just feeds on something else and something that's a parasite on something else? Yeah, so parasites and predators actually have a lot in common with one another. They're both feeding on the tissues of other organisms. Um, parasites do this in a special way, though. Whereas a predator has to kill its prey in order to get its dinner, a parasite actually doesn't have to do that. A parasite can live on its prey or host organism for its whole life, and many parasites do. Um, the difference with parasites is that they live in these intimate and durable relationships, by which I mean that they're living in a spatially close relationship, either in or on their host, and in a temporally long relationship. This isn't a one-off interaction. It's something that lasts for a really long time. And so, like a predator, a parasite is taking tissues and energy from its host, but unlike a predator, it's doing that in a secretive way and living alongside the host all the while. So therefore, if I understand this, a mosquito 
is not a parasite. Correct. Yeah, we have a special term for things like mosquitoes that just take these one-off meals and then run away. Uh, and that term is micropredator. Micropredator. Is a vampire bat a micropredator? Yes. Because they're kind of big. <laughs> they are big. <laughs> they are big. But uh, the meal that they're taking from their host is small. You know, c- calling a mosquito a micropredator, it makes me feel a little bit better kind of giving it that level of menace, then I feel more <laughs> satisfied when I swat it with a rolled up magazine. Why did you want to study parasites? You started out in marine biology, which is always so appealing to a young person. So you just thought that these other organisms were every bit as interesting or more? Yeah, that's exactly right. I never set out to study parasites. And in fact, I was totally grossed out by them when I first encountered them. They have I, a repulsive vibe. They really do. <laughs> yeah, they do. When you when you don't look at them closely, they do have a repulsive vibe. But the way that I got into it was just a, a complete accident. I, I wanted to study whales and dolphins. You know, I was that marine biology kid. And when I was an undergraduate, I was trying to get into research and I was in a landlocked place. So I asked around where, where for opportunities in New Hampshire at Dartmouth College. So there weren't a lot of marine opportunities. I um, had one of my mentors set me up with a friend of hers who happened to be a marine biologist who studied parasites. And I went into his lab thinking, you know, the parasites are gross. I'm not really interested in them. I don't want to work on parasites, but this is my chance to work on a marine biology project. And I like to say that somewhere along the way, they got under my skin. I <laughs> <laughs> see what you did there. So hang it. You were a biology major? Yeah, that's right. I was an ecology and evolutionary biology major. So, so you go in the lab. What's in the lab? Dolphins? What's in the- <laughs> Yeah. Well, the, this uh, initial research opportunity that I had was actually working on trematode parasites in intertidal snails. Trematode. Not the, yeah, not the sexiest marine biology project ever. Um, what, but what's, be, a, what's a trematode? If I, what, sure. A, a trematode is a flatworm, and the trematodes are actually an entire class of flatworms that are parasitic. Um, and they are super cool among the parasites because they have three host life cycles. So we just talked about malaria that has a two-host life cycle. These guys have three hosts, which is um, really, when you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, quite a feat to evolve. So what are the three hosts and, and how did this all come about? How did, how did the evolution work this out? Yeah. Well, so the trematode, the classic trematode life cycle starts in a snail. The snail is what we call the first intermediate host. So it's the first host of the larval stages of the parasite. And inside the snail, the trematode reproduces asexually, basically just popping out hundreds of millions of clones of itself over the course of its lifetime. Hundreds Hundreds of millions? Of millions. Okay. And how big is a hundred million member? Uh, Well, so the the little clones that are produced are called cercaria. They are teeny tiny. Um, How tiny is teeny tiny? Ooh, I'd have to look that one up for you. Is, but, it, uh, point, is it a tenth of a millimeter or a hundredth of a millimeter kind of thing? I'd say closer to a tenth. They're um, just barely visible to the naked eye. Yeah, so if you look at a, a, a piece of thin paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the snail, in the course of being infected, is actually completely castrated. The parasite eats its gonad and uses that energy to make more little baby parasites, And in the process, the snail loses the ability to reproduce entirely. But it doesn't die. It keeps trucking around in the intertidal zone, looks like a normal snail, eats like a normal snail. But it'll never make snail babies again. All it will make are parasite babies for the rest of its life. So that's the first cool stop on the life cycle of the trematode. (laughs) Okay, but somebody must eat the snail. Yeah, let's get to stop number two. Yeah, um, so there are things that eat the snails, but that is not how the parasite is transmitted in this stage. Oh, no, my friends. Oh, the, no, my friends. <laughs> the, that the would be too easy. Pops out. It, it would be. It would be too easy. It's got to be complicated. These cercaria go out into the water column, and they seek out a second intermediate host, another host for a different larval stage. And they find that often in small fish, often for uh, the parasite that I was studying, uh, killifish. And they 
insist inside of this host um, in kind of a, a resistant uh, capsule where they await their next step Wait, hold on. They, the they, 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 they insist, meaning they, they create little cysts. They cre- they, they you got put, it. Okay, got it. E- E-N-C-Y-S-T. Yeah, they're not pushy about it, although I guess they kind of are. Yeah, they're not they don't insisting. insist on insisting. Yeah. <laughs> so, but but what's the name of the fish again? A killifish? Killifish. What's a killifish? Would I recognize it? What is, uh, have just I a, eaten a killifish? You definitely have not. Uh, they are small, like couple centimeter fish that live in schools and hang out in salt marshes. Uh, they're basically the snack food of the salt marsh, uh, which is where we get our next step in the life cycle. That cyst that sits inside of the fish is basically laying in wait. It is hoping that its host, the fish, is going to get eaten by the next host in the life cycle of the parasite, which uh, in this case is a bird. So the bird eats the fish, the parasite in its little cyst busts out once it feels the um, acidity of the stomach of the bird, and it becomes an adult. Once it's an adult, it can mate, lay eggs, the bird poops out eggs, those wind up in the intertidal zone, they hatch and they infect snails, and that's how the life cycle is completed. Wow. So they sense the acidity of the bird tummy. Mm-hmm. Is this how this was discovered? How did you how did you all figure this out? It's like, how could you trace it from one host to another? It's really tricky, especially because the parasite looks pretty different in each life stage. When it's an adult in the intestine of the bird, it's fluke-shaped, so it's kind of like a, a leaf, uh, a small leaf floating around in the intestine. And then once it's in the snail, it's completely different. Uh, and the cercaria that are produced by the snail also look different, and the metacercarial cyst in the fish looks different from the three that preceded it. Um, so it's just, it was, in the beginning, really careful microscopy that let parasitologists see the similarities among those different life stages and piece them together into a full life cycle. And today we have things like DNA sequencing that lets us grind up the DNA in any one of those life stages, look at the DNA sequence and be able to tell that one is the same as the next, even though they don't look alike. So is is the complexity of this life cycle, is that what made you fall in love with parasites? Is this what changed your mind? Yeah, it is. This kind of life cycle just, to me, seems so precarious and delicate and just carefully filigreed. You know, it's so complicated. It's hard to imagine how it can possibly exist. And yet it's one of the most common lifestyles on Earth. The the other thing that got me really excited about parasites was that I'd never learned anything about them up until that point in my biology education. And as I learned more, I realized that even though I didn't know anything about them, they were all around me all the time. Parasites are absolutely ubiquitous. And for me as a biology student to realize that there was this whole sphere of the earth that I had never encountered, that I'd never seen, it was totally dazzling and I was hooked. So Chelsea, how does this come about? Yeah, well, I'm I'm not a parasite evolutionary biologist, so I can't tell you about every step in that evolutionary progression. But I can tell you that we suspect that that step between the fish and the birds, the trophic transmission step, is really just the natural adaptation that any species would have in response to predation, right? Like think about, you know, you're you're a parasite of a fish and every once in a while a predator comes along and eats you and you die and that reduces your fitness. That's a bad thing. The parasite for the that, parasite, it was bad for the fish, but it's also bad for you as a parasite. You got it. Yeah. But if you can be the parasite who evolves an adaptation to be able to exploit that predator instead of be killed by that predator, that gives you an enormous advantage. And so natural selection should act on those parasites to, you know, get them to evolve that trophic transmission capability. So those Steps where we're moving from prey to predator actually make perfect sense in an evolutionary lens, because why wouldn't you evolve that capability under predation pressure? Now, when you say parasites are everywhere, does that mean basically every ecosystem, every animal that you open up and look at closely enough, are there, do you mean literally parasites are everywhere? Yes. I mean it literally. Every continent, 
every species, every ecosystem. I promise there's a parasite within 10 feet of you right now. Is there a parasite inside of me right now? Highly likely. What parasite would be inside of Corey? (laughs) Well, almost certainly Corey has facial mites because those are present in about 100% of living adult humans. Yeah, it's true. She's right. (laughs) No, but I've heard my biology teacher told me this when I was in high school. You feel your eyebrow itch and you scratch it. That's because there's some mite burrowing into your follicle. Is that right? You got it. Well, usually we won't notice them at all. It's only in very rare cases that they cause any kind of symptoms that you would notice. But they're there uh, eating your sebaceous fluids and living in your pores. Uh, And there are at least two species on the human face that are very common. Wow. If there's all these organisms and all these parasites, it seems like parasites must have an enormous effect on the balance of living of species in an ecosystem. They do. And normally when we think about parasites, we have negative associations with them, right? Like we think of them as gross and dangerous. We think of them as causing grotesque symptoms and they do all those things. That's right. We true. Think, we think of them as being unhe- unhealthy somehow or harmful. <laughs> Yeah, they well, somehow, are. <laughs> look at them. Yeah. <laughs> so go ahead. They're taking my energy, right? They're taking my tissue to get their energy to advance their species at the expense of mine. That's right. And, and we always take the side of the host, right? We always look at that relationship from the host's perspective. And from the host's perspective, parasitism is always bad. It's by definition bad. It reduces host fitness. But... Parasites have beneficial effects at the level of the ecosystem, even when we're thinking just about their negative pathologies for hosts. So, for example, think about a parasite keeping a cap on the abundance of a particular species. You know, there are species that are controlled in their abundance by the presence of predators. There are species whose abundance is controlled by the limited abundance of their prey, right? The things that they eat are not infinite, and so that species is not infinite either. Parasites serve that same function. They can put the brakes on population growth for a species that otherwise would grow out of control. Can so you give an example of that? Because I think you know, people know about, you know, like like you know, like hawks and rats or, you know, wolves and caribou, but is there an example of where parasites keep something under control? Um, yeah, absolutely. Think about... Um, Think about any invasive species. One of the reasons why invasive species do as well as they do in their invaded range is that they've arrived there without any of the parasites that normally keep a cap on their abundance. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, they, they're showing up without parasites. But hold it. If you are a honeybee and you have this so-called trachea mite, when you invade North America, you're bringing that mite with you, aren't you? You are, but you're probably not bringing all of the other parasites that affect you in your native range. So you might bring a subset, and those might have some effect of regulating your population, but you're not bringing the full suite. And that's why invasive species are thought to do as well as they do when they arrive in a new place. What about the flip side? Are there invasive parasites? Oh, tons, yes. And they're very bad. Oh, great. Very bad from a host's perspective, but not from a parasite's perspective. Yeah, I mean, they're great for themselves, right? The invasive parasites do very well. Their fitness is quite high, um, but they're bad for the hosts that they infect, and they're bad for the ecosystem. Think about, you know, rinderpest in Africa. This is an Asian uh, parasite that was introduced into Africa accidentally in cattle and laid waste to ungulates across Africa until it was eradicated. How was it eradicated? Through a lot of effort. Um, It was a massive global effort to uh, treat. I'm not a rinderpest expert, so I think there was a treatment and culling effort, but I'd have to check on that. I mean, how complex is a typical ecosystem? You threw out this one example of this crazy multi-species, starts in the snail, goes to the fish, goes to the bird, back to the snail? Trematode. Trematode. How many parasites in an ocean ecosystem? A million? Ten? Well, for the trematodes alone, we know that they're, by conservative estimates, are tens of thousands of species globally. Of species? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Not of individuals, of species? Yep. Wow. 
Yeah. It's amazing, huh? I mean, parasites are rarely included in um, K through 12 biology education. They weren't even mentioned to me until I was well into my undergrad. And yet they are crazy diverse. You know, they are the majority of animal species on earth. Uh, and yet, you know, we, we go around knowing almost nothing about them. You're telling me that the majority of all animal species are parasites. Depends on how you tally it, but the most recent tallies suggest that, yes. Wow. What would, what would adjust the tally? It depends on how you make that projection. You know, we don't, we don't know the total number of species on Earth for any group of organisms. We've still got a lot of taxonomic description to do before we actually have the full list of Earth species. And by a lot, I mean millennia of description. So there are lots of different approaches to the problem. Some people, you know, make the assumption that every animal species is going to have at least one host-specific parasite species. And by that estimate, parasites have to be at least 50% of animal species, right, if every one host has one parasite. I have a question. What about, what about viruses? Do viruses count as parasites? Controversial question. Depends on whether you classify vi- viruses as alive. And if you do, they fit into our definition of parasite, which is an organism that lives in an intimate and durable relationship with its host, where that host suffers a fitness cost. Viruses fit that very well. Stick around for more science rules after this. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Science Rules is back. As you may know, uh, my first job out of school was at Boeing in the Seattle area, and I'm a big fan of the Seattle area, and I'm a big fan of salmon. (laughs) And you studied parasites in modern salmon, and you found a way to study parasites in old salmon. Yeah, so we're really interested in this one group of parasites in the family Anisacidae, and they are nematodes or roundworms. So we talked about trematodes before. Those are in the phylum Platyhelminthes, which are the flatworms. Now we're in a totally different phylum, the nematoda, who are the roundworms. Um, and so nematode means round because people th- in science fiction, people throw nematodes around all the time. So they're roundworms. You got it. Yeah, and they're more colloquially called sushi worms because people intersect with them when they consume uncooked or undercooked fish. They're not fun to eat. They're, they cause abdominal cramping, diarrhea, vomiting. It usually resembles food poisoning and kind of resolves on its own. When it happens to people, we call it anisakiasis. The parasite can't survive in human guts and it just gets pooped out along the way. But it's not meant to be in people. Evolutionarily speaking, it doesn't intend to wind up in us because we're a dead-end host. We're death for the parasite. Who it really wants to get into uh, are the marine mammals. These nematodes have a very complex life cycle out in the marine environment where they are living as adults in the intestines of marine mammals. Those marine mammals poop out the eggs of the nematodes, which hatch and go on to infect um, zooplankton, like copepods, little crustaceans that are basically floating in the ocean. But hold on, you were, you were on a really interesting track of how you 
retrace the history of these parasites uh, because that that just seems seems like how do you how do you know what they were doing in the past? Yeah, well, because they wind up in salmon, so they go from copepods, they're kind of passed up the food chain to fish, and then from the fish, they can either wind up in the gut of a marine mammal, yay, good for the parasite, or in the gut of a person, boo, bad for us. Um, Bad and for the, for the parasite. Lose-lose. <laughs> yeah, so, th- so they wind up in the fish at some point in their life cycle. They have to pass through the fish in order to complete that life cycle. And that's where we get them. So in contemporary samples, like, I can just go to the fish market and buy a salmon fillet and find worms in it just by pulling the musculature apart. There are How other- big is such a worm? Uh, they're about a centimeter long. So all the people who are shopping at those fish markets are also buying fish with with parasites in them. You're, there's nothing special about you. Yeah, there. I don't have a magical ability to pick out wormy fillets. I just pick at random, just like everyone else. You know, when you cook a salmon, does it? You also cook the parasite, the these worms. Yeah, when you cook it, you inactivate the worm. They're really sensitive to heat, so they're largely not dangerous to people anymore when they're cooked. But the problem comes when you prepare sushi from that fillet, the worm can still be alive. So it's it's easy for us to find these worms in fillets from the seafood market. Our problem was we're really interested in the fate of parasites over the long term. You know, there's kind of this, this sentiment now that everything is falling apart, right? That the whole world is falling down around our ears, that we've messed up Earth's ecosystems terribly. And it sort of intuitively makes sense that other bad things like parasitism would come along with all that extra badness, right? That if we're messing with Earth's Earth's ecosystems, there should be a consequence to pay in terms of a rising tide of infectious disease. This is a really common belief among you know the general public, but also among disease ecologists. And we're really interested in testing whether that rising tide of disease is real. And you can only do that with data that extend into the past. The problem is that for parasites, no one's been paying attention. There are no historical data for us to rely on. It's not like you know we're interested in a fishery and we can go to fisheries records or government logs or some sort of economic ledger to get a sense of what things were like in the past. For parasites, there is none of that. There must be stories, though, about people getting sick, or whatever, but neither here nor there. You had a cool idea, right? Yeah. So what we do is, you know, we had to get creative about this. The normal tools that historical ecologists use, ecologists who study the past, um, those normal tools just don't work on parasites. So we started fooling around with seeing whether we could detect parasites in fluid-preserved fish specimens held in natural history museums. And it turns out that you can. These are like the pickled fish that are stored in drawers in the in the basement of the Museum of Natural History? Exactly. In formaldehyde or what have you. Yeah, they're usually fixed in formaldehyde and then they're stored in ethanol. And in you, alcohol. Yeah. yeah, you can see tons of them on public display at any museum. But what is on public display is a tiny fraction of what most museums actually hold. And in the basement, there are, you know, sometimes millions of individual fish that are stored in ethanol, just parasite time capsules waiting to be dissected. That's how often have I thought that to myself. <laughs> so, so wait, so you're... You, There's a parasite time capsule, dog. So, so you're digging around in the basements of natural history museums, un, cutting up their pickled fish, looking for parasites. Have I summarized correctly here? Exactly, yeah. And because they have fish from, you know, sometimes as early as the 1880s, we can pick out our fish carefully and reconstruct a whole timeline of parasite change in a single ecosystem. Cool. So to find we use a microscope and scalpel and dental pick kind of something or other? Exactly. Yeah. So we do the dissections almost exactly like we would do for a fresh fish. We do a little bit less destruction because we want to make sure that we're preserving as much of the external features of the fish as possible, right? These They're not making any more fish from 1945. So we want to make sure that we take care of them as well as we can. But we use a scalpel, we cut them open, and most of these parasites, uh, the metazoan animal parasites at least, can be seen with a microscope. Um, 
because they're fixed in formaldehyde first, formaldehyde is super nasty for DNA. It chops it up into tiny little pieces. So it's more difficult to use DNA sequencing to identify parasites that are too small to see with a microscope, like viruses, bacteria, protozoa. But other folks who are way smarter than me are working on that, and it's becoming possible to reconstruct those DNA fragments and know all the parasites that were in a fish, not just the animal parasites that we can see with our eye. Okay, so hold on. We, we lost track of the salmon. Where, where did the salmon oh, fit right. in with this? Because I don't think the salmon are hanging out in the basements of the museums. No, unfortunately, they aren't. Um, and that was really disappointing for us when we first started on the project that we're working on now, where we're reconstructing 100 years of parasite change for our local marine ecosystem, Puget Sound. Salmon were the first species on our list. They were the ones that we wanted the most. Yeah, you'd think the University of Washington would have kept a few salmon just to have around, right? But I guess they all got eaten or they took it for granted. (laughs) That is what happened. There are lots of salmon specimens in our home museum, which is the ichthyology collection at the University of Washington's uh, Burke Museum. But they're all tiny, right? They're not the kind that you would want to eat. They're just juveniles. And the ones that you would want to eat wound up getting eaten instead of accessioned into the museum. So there isn't good representation of salmon in the Burke, unfortunately, which we were super disappointed by. The Burke Museum on the Ship Canal in Seattle, not far from the University of Washington football stadium. You did something with cans of salmon, right? Yeah, we recently figured out where all those salmon were going in the years when they weren't going into the museum. Um, and some of them were going into cans, and and those cans are produced here in Seattle and in other places. And many of them are actually retained in archives by organization organizations like the Seafood Products Association, who who is a collaborator of ours. Um, and so they, they have cans lying around or on shelves from 1944 or whatever the heck it is. Not quite that early, but from the mid 70s onward, yeah, they have an archive of canned salmon. And they were actually, you know, cleaning out their basement and wanted to know whether we wanted to take some of them off their hands. You and imagine, Corey, you're going through the basement and here's a 50-year-old can of salmon. Mm-mm. So what happens? You open the can of salmon, you go looking for worms. Yeah, we tried a couple different ways. We squashed the um, material inside the can between glass plates. We tried dissolving it with acid, but the best way turned out to be just picking it apart with forceps. The worms are clearly visible. And we have three super cool students who are working on this project, Natalie Mastic, Rachel Wellicky, who's a postdoc, and Aspen Catla. And they're, as we speak, picking apart those salmon cans and looking for worms and finding them. All right, so if I had purchased uh, a can of this salmon in 1970, and uh, my belief is it was done back then the way it is now, you put the salmon in the can, then you put the can in a retort in a giant super hot thing, and the salmon gets cooked in the can. Is that right? Correct. And the worm would have been co-cooked. You got it. And But it's still recognizable. Absolutely. Is it white and a centimeter long? What is it? Yeah, they're white-ish. Sometimes they're a little bit darker in color, depending on what species they are. Um, we haven't yet worked on nailing down... Uh, the species identifications, but we're able to recognize them very easily. Now, hold on. I, I just have to ask here for a second. Do you ever just open up, a, you know, you buy a can of salmon at the supermarket today and you take it home, you open it up and you look at it like, oh, look at the parasites in there. Does that happen? I, I buy fillets of salmon all the time and pick out the worms before I eat them. It's really variable though. Um, I don't want to make it sound like every filet you buy at the grocery store is full of worms. That's not the case. We, you know, when we're lucky, find one or two in a filet. So hold on. What did you learn? You, what did you figure out by oh, looking at from these? the cans yeah. of salmon? Uh, that, yeah. that project is ongoing. Uh, the data collection is happening right now. And so we don't know yet, but what we, so the know, data is what species, how big it is, how many colors? worms per gram of salmon filet that we pull out of the cans? What species are those worms? And was there a change in the number of worms per gram over time? What about digging through the museum collections? Do you have a sense of historical change there? Yeah, yeah. We're 
getting to the end of the sampling for the museum collections project in the Pacific Northwest. And what we see so far is that there's tons of change, but it's in all kinds of different directions. There are some parasites that are increasing over the past century and others that are diminishing such that we can't find them in the museum specimens from more recent years. What's an example? Um, Well, so we just finished the analysis for one host species, English sole. This is a a flatfish that lives on the bottom of Puget Sound, and it's one of the most common fish that's pulled up in bottom trawls, which is why it's really well represented in the Burke Museum. And in that fish, we have one nematode parasite called Clavinema mariae, which forms these disgusting red bloody lesions on the underside of the fish, just under the skin. And this parasite has become eight times more abundant today than it was back in the 1930s from our first samples. And I just got to think it's humans, humans caused that. What did we do? I mean, it's possible. Um, It could be climate change, right? Like speeding up the life cycle of the parasite, allowing it to get in more generations per reproductive season. Ever so slightly warmer, so Mm -hmm. their their chemistry is faster. Yep. Yeah, and it could be nutrient pollution that's facilitating blooms of copepods, which are an intermediate host for the parasite, so it might benefit from those blooms. Um, It could also be changes in the density of English sole themselves. We fished them pretty intensively in the early part of our timeline in the 30s and 40s, but that fishing pressure has relaxed over time because the fishery was shut down in parts of Puget Sound in the 40s and 50s because this parasite was becoming so common. And then there were regulations put into place in the 80s to protect other fish that live on the bottom, like rock fishes, and incidentally protected English sole as well. So it could be that, you know, English sole are becoming more abundant and more dense and therefore transmitting the parasite more effectively. Um, Could be any of those things. We don't know which one. But do you think you have a means to figure it out? Yeah, the next stage of the research is to take all the things that have changed over time in Puget Sound that we suspect might play a role in parasite transmission and compete them against one another in a statistical model to see which one does the best job of explaining the change in parasite abundance that we see over time. But we haven't done that yet. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, in in the big picture, I mean, you were talking about, you know, testing this idea that, yeah, the parasites were getting worse as, as humans were causing trouble could the could the opposite be happening? Could there be like a mass extinction of parasites going on because of human activity? There absolutely could. And I suspect that for many parasite species, there is. That we're losing parasite biodiversity without even knowing it because no one is paying attention. And we have some evidence for that from the English soul. There are a couple of parasites that just nosedive in our timeline. We're, we have nine more host species that we're analyzing right now, so we'll know more in the coming months. But for now, the story looks to be that there are these parasites that are exploding in abundance and causing problems, and they're probably exploding due to us, to what we're doing to the ecosystems. But there are other species that are diminishing to extinction, and that's our fault as well. So is it a case where the parasites have a role in keeping the ecosystem healthy or they indicate that we are affecting the eco they're just uh, not just they're indicators of other things we're doing to the ecosystem or i guess is it both yeah it's both and you know we we talked about one role that parasites play in ecosystems which is to keep a cap on the population density of hosts that otherwise would explode in abundance but they do other stuff too and i think the other stuff is actually more interesting because we talked about for example Yeah, we talked about that trematode before that passes from uh, fish into birds, right? Remember, it is in an insisted form in the fish, and then it's eaten by the bird, and it senses the acidity of the stomach, and it pops open, becomes an adult, reproduces, and makes eggs. If you're uh, a cyst sitting in that fish, you have a couple choices. You can just sit there and wait and you have a pretty good likelihood of winding up in the gut of a bird anyway because you're living in an intermediate host that's the snack food of the salt marsh. Um, Lots of those fish wind up in the guts of birds. But if you're enterprising, you might devise a method for getting into that bird more efficiently or increasing your likelihood of getting into that bird at all. 
And that is what many trematodes have done. There's a great example in uh, California salt marshes. And in this example, the parasite, which is called Euhaplorchis californiensis, Yuha for short, it insists on the brain of the killifish. And instead of being shy and retiring and quiet and keep into the bottom of the salt marsh, the infected killifish actually make a complete spectacle of themselves. They swim up near the surface. They flash their shiny sides. They're super visible. And that makes it way more likely that they're going to be eaten by birds. Jeez, that's so crazy. <laughs> it reminds me of this mythic story of the, the zombie ant that eats the fungus, right? Is that a real story? It's a real story, yeah. And there are actually several stories in ants of this kind of behavioral manipulation. One really famous one is the fungus. Another is a, a different species of trematode, and they both do wild things. To Wait, what does this, what what this, other, what what this trematode do? do? <laughs> um, the trematode has a life cycle where it passes from a snail, first intermediate host, into an ant, second intermediate host, and then um, a grazing animal as its final host, usually something like a sheep. And once it gets into the ant, uh, it it takes over its behavior. The ant, like, is normal during the day, just does normal ant stuff. But at night, it leaves the colony, runs up a blade of grass, and hangs out on the tip of that blade of grass, waiting for a grazing animal to come by. If it passes the whole night without getting eaten, it goes back down the blade of grass, rejoins the colony, does normal ant stuff during the day, and then repeats it the next night. It just goes, whoa, I had the weirdest dream last night. (laughs) Whereas if it gets eaten, it's never heard from again, except the parasite is heard from. Yeah, the parasite gets into the gut of the sheep like it planned. Science Rules will be right back. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. You're listening to Science Rules. You know, I mean, you're telling all these really cool stories, but I know and people still have a visceral feeling like a parasite is an unhealthy thing in an ecosystem. But it sounds like you're saying a healthy ecosystem needs parasites. Like, like would a healthy coral reef, for instance, be full of parasites? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the these examples, the, these behavioral manipulation examples get people's attention because they're crazy, right? It's hard to imagine how evolution— They're so creepy. <laughs> so creepy, But the important thing about these manipulations isn't how neat they are. It's their effect on the ecosystem. Because if you think about it, what these parasites are doing is making prey biomass available to predators that otherwise would not be available to them. They're feeding predators, which means that we have all the apex predators that we have today thanks to parasites. Well, wait a second. We're kind of an apex predator. So yeah, I want to hear about these behavioral manipulations that we're going through. Uh, yeah. do, are, do, do parasites cause us to do podcasts? <laughs> I haven't seen a study on that, but um, you know, we could we could run some numbers and see. We like to think of ourselves as really complicated, right? And we are. Human brains are super impressive. They do very, very cool stuff. But we're not above being manipulated by parasites. There is one parasite in particular, that's very common in the human population and that does a really creepy behavioral manipulation on us. It's called Toxoplasma gondii, and it's a protozoan parasite closely related to the parasite that causes malaria. I call it Toxo for short. And this parasite gets into people in a couple of different ways. It's It's meant to be a rat and cat parasite, It's passed from cats, which are its final host. It has sex in the intestine of the cats, produces eggs. Those eggs are shed out into the environment. They're eaten by a rat. The rat becomes infected as an intermediate host of the larval parasite. And then when the rat is eaten by the cat, that completes its life cycle. That's 
the way that most toxo reproduction is done. So people can get involved when they accidentally ingest the eggs of the parasite from cat feces. And that can happen, you know, if you're cleaning a litter box and you don't wash your hands, or if your cat walks in its litter box and then walks across your kitchen counter, it's much easier than you'd expect. Um, And you can also get infected by eating the larval stage out of an intermediate host. Now, the intermediate host can be rats, but it can also be any other mammal, and it gets into uh, beef cattle frequently. So if you eat undercooked beef, that's another means of infection. And that's part of the reason why a huge proportion of Americans are infected, depending on what area of the country you are. It's a little bit different, but overall, the average is supposed to be something like 30%. So people who are infected by Taxo exhibit some characteristic behaviors. There are different behaviors between males and females who are infected, but the most disturbing part is that anyone who's infected is about three times likelier to get into a car accident. And for a long, of course, <laughs> for a long time that was really puzzling, right? Like, oh yeah, it's obvious, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? How? What are you talking about? It turns out rats that are infected um, exhibit this suite of behaviors that are really maladaptive. Rats who have toxoplasma in their bodies are um, clumsy, they're reckless, they're less fearful, and they're actually sexually attracted to the smell of cat urine. And and that's real bad for a rat because it... You go walking up to the cat and the cat eats you. Exactly. Yeah, it makes you way likelier to be preyed on by a cat, which is exactly what the parasite wants. Now, <laughs> we... we I'm sure like to think of ourselves as very different from rats, but biochemically, we're not that different. And so this adaptation, which evolved for Toxo to pull the the strings of rat behavior, actually works pretty well on people too. So even though people rarely get eaten by cats and we're usually dead-end hosts for Toxo these days, Toxo is still up to its old tricks, trying to pull the strings of host behavior no matter what host it's in. And that means that we get as reckless as an infected rat when we ourselves are infected. Whoa, dude. So some parasites clearly are, are bad for humans. My understanding is you are working to combat the effects of parasites on humans in Senegal. Is that right? Yeah, we have a project on the human disease schistosomiasis, which is a mouthful, which is, which is why we call it schisto for short. And uh, it's an awful flatworm parasite of people. Um, it's a trematode, so has a similar life cycle to the trematodes that we've discussed earlier. But this one is actually a little bit simpler. It just has two hosts. It moves from snails to people and then back into snails. And the way that it gets into people is that those little cercaria, the clonally produced infectious stages that come out of the snail, they swim around in the water. They can smell people from a great distance. They swim right toward a human bather and penetrate their skin, ride their circulatory system, and take up residence in the veins around their bladders or their intestines. And there they live for up to 30 years. Okay, so so what are you doing to try to reduce the contact? Well, we're trying to understand the ecology of the disease a little bit better. Um, Schisto has been studied for many, many years, but mostly by physicians who are rightly focused on what's going on inside the human host. We have a really great drug for schistosomiasis. It's called praziquantel, and uh, it's actually distributed across Africa for free by the drug maker, which is tremendous, a, a great humanitarian effort. But despite that, we've still got 206 million people infected with schistosomiasis. And the reason is that the drug isn't a vaccine. You can treat someone with prosy, and they might be completely clear of their existing parasite infections. But the second they go back out into the water, they're at risk again, and they're going to accumulate it's a whole reinfected, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So what we're doing is trying to understand the landscape of transmission, right? The, the ecology that surrounds a person so that we can figure out ways to manipulate the environment that might reduce transmission opportunities and kind of fix the problem with reinfection um, in the presence of people who are treated. What about education? 
Hey, you guys, don't get back in the water. Education only takes you so far in most of the places that are hotspots of schisto because people often don't have other options for accessing water. The local pond or irrigation ditch or river is the only place where people can get drinking water or take a bath or wash their clothes. And so education just tells them that what they have to do by necessity is dangerous. It's not, there's no opportunity for behavior change. Are you into the theory of the Red Queen and this idea that sex enables you to have uh, a new combination of genes faster than without sex? Oh, absolutely. I, I think the Red Queen hypothesis is fascinating. And I think just kind of philosophically speaking, it's super cool to imagine that the reason for the existence of male humans is all about parasites. So we wouldn't have human males without parasites. Yeah, well, here's the thinking. The idea is that parasites are constantly changing and adapting to do a better job at getting into and infecting and exploiting their hosts. It's their whole reason for existence. It's all that they want. And they're really good at figuring out ways to get inside and exploit us. Um, and our evolutionary imperative is to figure out how to prevent that. Hosts and parasites are locked in this eternal struggle where the parasite finds a better way to get inside their host. And then the host has to find a better way to prevent the parasite from getting inside of it. Um, and so on ad infinitum. It's called the Red Queen hypothesis because in Alice in Wonderland, the Red Queen says something to the effect of, and now it takes all the running that you can do to stay in the same place. And just like for the Red Queen, with co-evolution, the evolution of host and parasite together, they're constantly moving forward. They're constantly evolving new adaptations, but it doesn't get them anywhere. It doesn't get them any higher fitness. It only helps them keep up with their partner who's running just as fast. So the thinking is that what is, what's a host to do? In order to keep up with your parasite, you have to have access to a large amount of genetic diversity to draw on because the parasite's always going to be coming up with something new, some new crazy innovation that you have to find a way to counter. And the only arrows in your quiver are the genetic adaptations, the genes that you've got in your gene pool. So it's thought that sex evolved because sex allows access to a whole variety of genetic combinations that are not possible when you're just reproducing clonally. If you're cloning yourself, all your babies are going to have exactly the same genes that you have, which means that they're going to be exactly as susceptible to parasites as you are. It makes it really hard to run on that treadmill and keep up with your co-evolutionary partner, the parasites. By having sex, you allow lots of recombination, which allows many, many different combinations to arise in the next generation. And hopefully one of your babies has the right combination of genes to fight off the next generation of parasites. Um, it's essentially being able to put lots of eggs in lots of different baskets and count on at least one of those baskets, not uh, losing its fitness completely in the next generation. So, okay. So I, I just have to ask, I have to ask one question. This may be beyond the scope of the, of the, the episode, but I have to ask this idea of yeah, that the male is kind of a, a a parasite or a byproduct of parasites. I notice looking at your research group, um, you've been very you've been very good at, promo at promoting women in science, um, which is great to see. Uh, you know that you have this. Um, you know, there's a have twice as many brains. You have, everybody. You, have a, you have a you have a lot of enthusiastic young researchers. It, it, you know, it was very cool seeing the, the team that you put together. But I'm wondering, is this your attempt at fighting back against the parasites? <laughs> Are you trying to reduce the number of parasites? <laughs> no. <laughs> so the, the gender composition of our lab is uh, not a conscious choice on my part. It's just something that happened over the years. I advertise positions and I select uh, the most qualified person for those positions. And it just so happens that that resulted in a 100% female lab. I think it also has to do with the topic that we study, which actually does have a, uh, a large number of women interested in it as compared to some other sub-disciplines within ecology. 
Um, so it's it's kind of a function of the available pool of people and uh, the qualifications of those people. Uh, Corey, wait, wait, Corey, wait, Corey, Corey, Bill, Bill, I hear something. Did you hear that? Yes. It's a, it's a thunderous rumbling kind of noise, uh, indicative of lightning, which tells me that it's time for the lightning round. So are there any parasites that benefit their hosts? No, parasites, by definition, are bad for their hosts. Um, there are, however, some indications that humans might have a kind of byproduct benefit of being exposed to parasites in that Parasites could suppress autoimmune diseases. For example? Well, there is this hypothesis called the hygiene hypothesis, which posits that because we evolved alongside parasites, our immune systems are tuned to having parasites present. And in the absence of parasites, the immune system basically fights itself. There are. Is this what's going on with the peanut allergy that's just... Uh, if I may, exploding? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of allergies and autoimmune diseases that are increasing by very scary numbers in the developed world that are not present in the developing world. And there are some clinical trials in process that are using parasites to try and alleviate autoimmune diseases, including multiple sclerosis and um, irritable bowel syndrome and ulcerative colitis that are seeing some success, which suggests that our immune systems might need parasites because of that co-evolutionary history that we share with them. Is there a parasite that you that even you find troubling and gross? I find troubling any parasite that affects people. I'm, I'm a big advocate for parasites. I think that wildlife parasites have not received nearly the conservation attention that they should, given that they serve really important ecological roles out in the ecosystem. However, that um, positive feeling does not extend to any parasite that affects humans. I think that (laughs) human parasites, particularly the neglected tropical diseases, which still cause a tremendous amount of suffering and despair in the world, deserve eradication. And that's part of why we're working on schistosomiasis. Your solidarity with your species is duly noted. Yeah, that's good. Now, is there is there a nastiest parasite to you? The mean-spiritedest one? Oh, I don't think any of them are mean-spirited. I think they all mean well. Don't we all? I believe every, every, every parasite is the hero of its own story. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So if you had to pick something less nasty than parasites to study, what would it have been? Dolphins and whales and stuff? I think had I not studied parasites, I probably would have wound up studying contaminants, which would have been a mistake because I am really terrible at organic chemistry. How often I've thought that. (laughs) Not about you, but about (laughs) organic chemistry. All right, so um, in half a minute or less, why should people, why should regular people love parasites? Parasites are super gross when you look at them with the naked eye. But when you get them under a microscope, they are some of the most gorgeous creatures I have ever laid eyes on. They have these elaborate mechanisms for being able to do what they do. And if you ever have the opportunity to take a look at a parasite under a microscope, I promise you'll fall in love. Wow. Fall in love with parasites. Wow. How cool is that? Thank you, Chelsea. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about parasites and their role in ecosystems. Our guest today has been Dr. Chelsea Wood. She's an ecology professor who studies parasites at the University of Washington. Remember, when it comes to understanding the organisms that invisibly shape our ecosystems, science Science rules. rules. If you like Science Rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us find out what you want to hear about. So thank you. Be sure to look at all my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. And meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question at goodoldaskbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. Hey. Frank Olson mixed this episode. Casey Halford composed our original theme. Josephine Mortarana is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science, Science rules. rules. Chelsea, thank you so much. Wow. 
Stitcher. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.